morning, my name's Sam, and it's a joy to be with you this morning at our town center campus. Uh, Pastor Brad uh, is away this morning. He's actually uh, on the island. You got to see him, so you don't miss him too much, which is good. Um, but this, this weekend, he's actually been uh, at two funerals. He had to drive from one place to the other yesterday. He's facilitating one and singing at the other uh, for some very dear friends. Um, side note, has anyone heard Pastor Brad sing before? Way back when. Way back when. <laughs> If you don't know, now you know. Pastor Brad is an amazing singer. We actually have a Christian celebrity as our campus pastor. So if you don't know, right now I want you to go on your phone. You can look this up later, but write it down. Rhythm and News. Are you familiar with this? (laughs) Have you seen the videos? Come on, so good. A few nights ago or a few months ago, I was bored and I watched them for the first time. And it was one of the best days of my life. So uh, this morning, before we get into the message, we're actually going to take our community response offering. So ushers, if you want to come forward to collect that, um, if you're new to our church or you just don't know, the community response offering is really just our opportunity to meet the needs, the physical needs, the really real, um, yeah, physical needs, whether that be rent or food or clothing for children, for those in our community, and whether that's our church community or whether that's the Tri-Cities at large, we want to be a blessing, the hands and feet of Jesus to our community. And so uh, I would just encourage you to give as you feel led, and uh, we want to continue to be a blessing to our community. Amen? Amen. You can collect that as I'm speaking this morning. Well, we are going to continue our series uh, on the book of Hebrews called Greater Than. And so Pastor Brad set it up a few weeks ago, gave us some biblical history, and then walked us through chapter 1 and 2. And then this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3 and part of chapter 4. So just a little bit of context before we get into reading the word this morning. This book was originally written to Hebrew people. And so Hebrew is is synonymous with the term uh, Israelites or the Jewish people. These are people of Jewish descent who've been raised with all the Jewish traditions, the Jewish religion, and now they've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And this is a big deal. They live in the city of Rome, and, uh, and they've embraced Jesus as Messiah, and they're about to undergo some pretty serious persecution. And so that leads us this morning to chapter 3. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Across all our services at CA Church, we stand for the reading of God's word because we believe the words we're about to read this morning are the most profound, the most important words you're going to hear this morning. They're the inspired word of God to us, and so we stand in honor of that. Let's read together. If you have a Bible, otherwise it'll be on the screen. It already is. Fantastic. Here's what it says. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we read your word, we can learn more of your character and who you are. And so this morning, as I teach from this passage, as we look at the book of Hebrews together again this morning, I pray that you would speak through me, that the things that you want to communicate to your church this morning in Coquitlam, B.C., the Evergreen Theater, that you would say those things with clarity. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. So just a little bit of of clarity surrounding this book. So as I said, it's written to Jewish people, people of Jewish descent who've embraced Jesus as the Messiah, and they're undergoing some heavy persecution. And although I wouldn't describe our current situation, living in Coquitlam in Canada in 2020, as undergoing heavy persecution, what I would say is that it's becoming increasingly difficult to follow Jesus in the West. And maybe it doesn't look like um, being martyred for your faith or risk of being killed. Actually, just this morning on Glip, our staff channel, we were were talking about uh, our global partner over in Turkey who last night was thrown in prison because it it was posed as a, a threat against national security because his church is growing and thriving in a Muslim country. And so they threw him in prison just this morning. He was released, praise God, by the favor. Yeah, we should celebrate that. But that's not really our reality here, living in Coquitlam, B.C., but it is becoming increasingly difficult. Maybe for you, it looks like not getting the job that you're qualified for because you're associated with Jesus. Maybe it's not getting into the school that you want to get into because you embrace an ancient ethic on sexuality that's just not popular today. Maybe you're abandoned or misunderstood by your family because you choose to stand for unborn children. Maybe people just don't treat you the same way as they treat other people because you're a Christian. And like the church in Hebrews, to whom this letter is addressed, we have the decision to make, are we going to cling to Jesus? Are we going to grow increasingly closer to him? Or are we going to turn away, take the easier path, conform to the way of the world, abandon him? So I really believe this study in Hebrews is an important one for us. But more than that, I believe that the Holy Spirit has already been speaking as we've been going through and wants to speak to us, encourage us, spur us on as we live this life in the West. So the first question that we need to answer this morning is what's the big deal with Moses? So the the author of Hebrews uh, spends a whole first, I think it's six to eight verses, talking about how Jesus is more superior than Moses. Why does he do this? Why does he set Moses apart? Well, I think to start, it's a little bit difficult for us to understand the kind of honor that the people of Israel would have had for Moses. Here's what I mean, especially living in Canada. I mean, in in countries overseas, in the East, there's kind of the shame, honor culture. And for better or for worse, that's not our reality here. For the most part, for better. But our approach to leadership is not nearly what it was in the, to the people of Israel. Here, we almost have like a punk rock attitude to leadership, like stick it to the man, or you can't tell me how to live. I'm my own person. I do my own thing. That's not the kind of culture that we're looking at here uh, in the people of Israel. Moses, 
was revered as the greatest man to ever live, the greatest of all the Hebrew people, the greatest man in all of history. Why? What's the big deal with Moses? Well, John Stott, who's a, who's a theologian, he, he writes six qualities that set Moses apart and, and gave Moses the title that, that he says of great apostle and high priest of the Old Testament. And these attributes, these six things, set him apart as the greatest man in all of Hebrew culture. So I'm going to unpack those for us this morning. The first is that Moses was divinely chosen by God. Think about it. Moses is miraculously preserved from birth. If you know the story, you know that, uh, that Pharaoh put out that, that all the Hebrew babies that were boys needed to be killed. This is what Moses was born into. All of them needed to be killed. And Moses' mother decides she doesn't want that for her son, so she puts him in a basket, puts it in the river, it floats down the river, and finds itself in Pharaoh's daughter's care. So the baby comes, she decides she's going to raise this baby, so she brings Moses into her palace, and then she ends up hiring Moses' own mother as his caregiver. Wow, what an amazing act of God's provision, where we see not only is she, is she raised by the, the Pharaoh's daughter in a palace court, but he's also cared for by his biological mother. Another example of Moses being called by God is his experience at the burning bush, where in Exodus 3, we see that God, the I Am, calls and ordains him to lead his people out of captivity. Secondly, Stott says this, Moses became the incomparable deliverer of his people. See, for years, the Hebrew people had been crying out to God, crying out to him, begging him to release them from captivity as they were in slavery to the Egypt people. And God chooses to answer that prayer by sending Moses. And if you know the story, whether you know the biblical texts or not, maybe you've watched The Prince of Egypt. Anyone watch The Prince of Egypt? One of my childhood favorites. Um, but, but in the story, in, in Exodus 7 to 12, we see that the Nile River turns to blood, that there's these successive plagues from frogs to gnats to flies that swarm Egypt, hail, boils on humans and animals. And on the dark night of the Passover, all the firstborn baby boys in Egypt who were not covered by the blood over the, over the doorposts were killed. With his staff, Moses parts the Red Sea, and his people walk through in this tremendous victory. And then as they walk through, once they get past, the sea swallows up all of their enemies. Later, in a monumental moment of, of God caring for his people, uh, Moses hits a rock, and water comes with it to bring water as they walk through the desert. And so over and over again, we see just these different examples of this delivering power that seemed to radiate from Moses. Thirdly, Moses served as, as Israel's greatest prophet. Now, God had spoken to different prophets throughout Israel's history, indirectly, but he speaks directly to Moses. Um, in Numbers 12, 6 to 8, it says this. This is God speaking. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly in not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. An example of this would be when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, where there's this exposure to, to God, and he has this profound encounter that radiates on his face for the rest of his life. The only human in Israel's history that maybe would have had a closer relationship to God is Adam before the fall. 
But aside from that, we look at all the Hebrew people, and in their tradition, he was known to be the man who had the closest, deepest, most intimate relationship with the Creator. Fourthly, Moses was the lawgiver. To the Jewish people, the law was the greatest thing, the greatest gift to them. You might hear law, you might hear suppression. To them, they heard joy, greatness, gift. And so from Moses, they got the Ten Commandments, the Levitical laws, the sacrificial systems, the tabernacles, pretty well everything in their religion, in the Jewish tradition, rooted itself in some way back to Moses. Even the law was called the law of Moses. Fifth, Moses was Israel's great historian. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, he wrote what they called the Torah, what we in the Christian tradition call the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then sixth, Moses was meek. According to Numbers 12, verse 3, it says, very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. So he's the greatest man in all of history, but his greatness and his influence has not gotten to his head. And, uh, and to the Jewish people, this would have been a very attractive quality to a leader. Not only is he chosen by God, not only has he done these miracles on behalf of us, but he's also meek, he's also humble. And so for all these, these reasons, as well as others, Moses was the greatest man in all of their history. Summed up as, as an apostle and a priest. Apostle means someone who sent someone who's sent by God. And Moses was very clearly sent, chosen by God, sent to deliver the the, the people. He was also sent as an advocate to Pharaoh for the Hebrew people. And then regarding his priestliness, this is what F.F. Bruce wrote. Uh, It says, "It, it was his brother Aaron and not he who was the high priest of Israel, so far as title and investiture were concerned. But it was Moses and not Aaron who was Israel's true advocate for God. And we see this illustrated in Exodus 17:8 to 13, when Moses holds up his arms when the people of Israel are fighting the Amalekites. As he as he holds up his arms, if you remember the story, the battle is 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 won by the people of Israel. And as his arms begin to fall, the Israelite people begin to lose. And so his own brother Aaron, who's the actual high priest of Israel as well as others, hold up his arms uh, demonstrating his his gifting, his calling as the priestly intercessor of the Israelite People. So for all these reasons, Moses is highly honored by the Jewish people. Here's an interesting note. In, uh, in Exodus 33, verse 8, I think we see the, the first picture of the paparazzi. Here's what it says. It's a little bit awkward to read, but here's what it says. Whenever Moses went out of his tent, all the people around would rise up. Each would stand at the door of his tent and watch Moses until he went back into his tent. <laughs> Sounds like an incredibly awkward situation for a leader. I'm so glad people don't do that for me. But this was the kind of honor that the people had for Moses. When Moses died, God himself buried his bones in an unmarked grave. And we don't know exactly why God did this. But a lot of biblical scholars point to the fact that he probably did it because uh, if people knew where the grave was, where his bones were, they would have gone to where Moses was to worship his bones. Moses was the first ever celebrity pastor. So when the author of Hebrews makes the statement that Jesus is greater than Moses, this would have been a pretty profound statement, a big revelation to the people of Israel. Like, we know Jesus is great, but greater than Moses? 
Or maybe some of them would have understood it intellectually. They would have understood the supremacy of Christ, that Christ was supreme overall, but they had never put the two side by side. They had never put Moses and Jesus in an arm wrestle, so to speak, to see who was stronger. They were both great. N.T. Wright, he said this. He, He framed it so beautifully. The early Christians faced two equal and opposite pressures. On the one hand, traditional Judaism was quite clear that God had given Moses his law and that the law was absolute and binding on God's people for all time. It was unalterable, inflexible, unchanging, uncompromising. And if you took that line, then the best you could say about Jesus was that he was bringing some new insight into how to keep the law. But Moses would remain the senior partner and the law would continue to determine the shape of God's people. And that would mean that God's new age still hadn't arrived. On the other hand, many early Christians were so excited to think about the new age that that had indeed arrived, that they were eager to move as fast as they could in the opposite direction. They were with Jesus. Therefore, there was nothing good to say about Moses at all. Nothing good to say about the law. Nothing good to say about Israel before Christ. And hence, they were in danger of cutting off the branch that they were sitting on. Moses matters, says Hebrews. But Jesus matters even more. Moses was a true servant of God, but, Moses, but Jesus was the son of God. The author of Hebrews uses this analogy of the house. He actually points to a house or a home six times in those first few verses that we read together this morning. And he says, although Moses was a great servant of the house, Jesus was the builder of the house. Jesus, he himself, being God, was the creator of all things. And so he, the, the, the writer of Hebrews is urging the church to look up. The creation pairs in comparison to the greatness of the creator. He says, look up at all of his splendor and all of his might. It's not that Moses is bad. It's that Moses actually makes sense in his rightful place under Christ. The story of Moses is part of a much greater, grander story. That's the story of God. See, the law which is what Moses is most notably known for, was actually given to us to point towards a need for a savior. The law is important because without it, we actually don't know how far we've fallen. All the sacrificial systems, all of them are pointing towards a day when the Messiah would come and he'd be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of his people, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John Piper says it like this, The law was kept perfectly by Jesus, and all its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on him. As a result, the law is no longer the path to righteousness. Jesus is. The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Jesus, not law-keeping for our righteousness. So the author of Hebrews says, Moses is good, Jesus is greater. See, Moses frees his people from Egypt, from their temporary affliction. And it's great. It's amazing. But Jesus frees all people who call on his name from the curse of sin and death and offers them permanent freedom. Moses hits a rock, as we said earlier. He hits a rock to provide water for his people as they walk through the desert in Israel. Jesus is the living water. Those who follow him will never thirst again. Matthew 5, 17 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Moses gives the law. Jesus fulfills the law. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, comes down with the Ten Commandments written on 
tablets of stone. Jesus conquers sin and death once and for all, ascends into heaven, and sends down his spirit. Not written on tablets of stone, but we read in scripture, written on the human heart. And this doesn't make less of Moses. It puts Moses in his rightful place, a faithful servant. One who's due much honor, but one who comes under the authority and the power and the kingship of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's keep reading. In verse 7, we, we move into a warning. The author of Hebrews, he does what, what many pastors do when they're preaching. He takes a passage um, from Scripture, in this case the Old Testament, to make a point that he's trying to make towards the people. And so he quotes from Psalm 95, and he uses it as a warning. Here's how it reads. Oh, well, one other note about this passage is this would have been a passage that the, the Jewish people knew off by heart. Uh, in most synagogues, this would be the passage that was read on the, the Friday before Sabbath as they were getting into their routines for Sabbath. And here's what it reads. So as the Holy Spirit says, actually, let's pause there. The writer's convinced that these words come from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit spoke through the psalmist in Psalm 95, a thousand years before he's quoting it in Hebrews, speaking to his audience. And then I would say to you today, it's the same Holy Spirit 2,000 years after it's used in Hebrews, that's speaking to us this morning in Coquitlam, B.C. Beautiful. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my way. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of a hardened heart. We see it if you read through the, the rest of Hebrews 3 and then even into chapter 4. He, the, the writer continues to come back to this idea of a hardened heart as a separator from rest. Rebellion and testing seem, as through this passage, to lead to a hardened heart. Or as he says a little bit later in the passage, their hearts are always going astray. They've not known my ways. Now here's a note. I think it's easy to look at a passage like this as followers of Jesus, some who've been following him for decades in life, and say, okay, this is a great passage, and it's written to non-Christians who have hard hearts. They haven't yet followed, followed, uh, decided to follow Jesus. But I want to remind you that the Hebrew writer is actually writing to the church, to church folk. He's writing to them and saying, your hearts can grow hard. He's writing and saying, you need to guard against the hardened heart thing. He's talking to us. Have you ever fallen asleep while you've been driving a car or, or experienced that you've been nodding off? Many of us. I remember when I was 18, I was driving with a friend to Portland and we decided that we were going to leave at 9 p.m. to drive to Portland, which is about a six-hour drive. It would put us there at 3 a.m., 18 years old. And I remember leaving uh, Surrey where I was living at the time and driving, getting Order. We're all excited, listening to music. We get to Bellingham, Blaine, Bellingham. And about as we pass Bellingham, my friend who's in the passenger seat starts to fall asleep. And at first, it's no big deal. I, I put on, I change the music to a sermon podcast and, and I pull over shortly after to get some coffee, get back in the car. I roll down the windows to, to make it cold so that I'd stay awake. And I remember passing Seattle and Tacoma. And then around that point, I remember just getting so, so tired. And so I'm slapping my face to try and keep myself awake. And again, opening the windows, anything I can do to keep myself awake. And uh, I remember 
I remember waking up to the of the rumble strips, and I woke up, and I was on the opposite side of the road, uh, onto the shoulder by the time I woke up, and I woke up, and I swerved back onto my lane, and I continued down the road as quick as I could, got off on a rest stop, and fell asleep for a little bit of time, and then got back on the road. And thank goodness there wasn't any other cars on the road. Maybe you've been in a situation like this. Maybe you have your own story. Maybe loved ones that you know have been in a situation. Maybe for you it didn't end as well, or maybe for the person that you know. Maybe there was oncoming traffic. But here's the point. Nobody wants to fall asleep when they're driving a car, but remarkably, a number of people do. There's even signs on the highway that, that, that warn us that falling asleep while driving is dangerous. Things like tiredness kills. You'd think it'd be obvious when you're driving 100 kilometers down the road asleep that that would be dangerous. But it's hard to drive at night. Even if you stop regularly to get coffee, to, to, to cool down, to do some exercise, do some push-ups, it's difficult to stay awake and And here's the thing, over time, our our brain begins to send signals to our brain, to our imagination, to our will, whispering louder and louder that it wouldn't matter if we just shut our eyes for a couple seconds. It would only be a minute or two. After all, the car has been going along quite easily now. Surely it can do it for a couple seconds if I just shut my eyes for a moment. And of course, if you give in to that in that moment, you're in serious danger, and so is everyone else on the road. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Well, nobody gets in the car with the aim of falling asleep halfway to their destination. The physical effects of tiredness, including the deceitful whisper that that tells you that everything's all right, that nothing bad will happen, you can just shut your eyes for a second. When those whispers happen, you need to recognize the state you're in and take quick, decisive action. And there's times in our Christian life where there's these corresponding moments of sudden sleepiness that I experience in the car. Times where for whatever reason, there's this persuasive whisper in your ear telling you that you might as well just take a break. That it doesn't really matter if you give in to temptation. You don't need to make an effort in prayer or reading the Bible or taking care of your neighbors as Jesus commands or or being about his justice in the world. It would just be so much easier to do what everyone else is doing. There's this soft, seductive pull of the world. And without noticing it, we often slowly fall asleep. We rebel. Oftentimes, slow steps towards what seems unnoticeable in the moment. It's these kind of micro-compromises, these little things that you do where you don't take thoughts or actions seriously, and all of a sudden you get to a point where you're driving the wrong way on the road (coughs) with oncoming traffic coming towards you. What does it look like? Well, maybe it looks like talking rudely to your wife and not asking for forgiveness. Maybe it's clicking a link that you know is going to lead to some not great content, but you trick yourself into saying, I don't know where it's going to lead. I don't know what that's, going to, what that's going to look like. Maybe it's cheating on your taxes to get a better tax return. Maybe it's harboring anger towards a brother or sister, not seeking reconciliation. Maybe it's cheating your employer out of, out of time, paid to you uh, to work, whether it's that you're leaving early or you spend half the day scrolling on social media. It's these little things. And when you find yourself in that place, you need to do the spiritual equivalent of pulling over at a rest stop, getting some water, doing some push-ups, doing whatever it takes to wake up. 
whatever it takes. And that's the call. That's the warning in Hebrews chapter 3. If we aren't quite as wide awake as we were when we set off, we need to take steps to get back to where he called us, back to awakeness. Otherwise, in spiritual language, our heart will become harder and bitter. It's the the spiritual equivalent of nodding off while driving. See, falling asleep seems so innocent, and it is, except when you're driving a car. It can cause severe damage. See, the Hebrew people saw all sorts of miraculous works that God had been doing. The plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, so they could cross, and then dealing with their enemies behind them, providing food and water for them as they journeyed through the desert, speaking to Moses on their behalf, giving them the law. They'd seen all these amazing things, and they began to grumble. They began to complain, which turned to rebellion, a lack of trust in God, and the same God that had saved them time and time again, a lack of trust in him that he would complete the good work that he started. They hardened their hearts. They lost their gaze. They fell asleep. And as a result of the million-plus people who left Egypt in this monumental moment, the million-plus people who crossed the Red Sea, only two who were over the age of 20 actually made it into the Promised Land. The rest found themselves dead corpse, disappointed, grumbling, faithless. A side note is that it's not good enough to start well. We need to finish well. Christianity isn't just about a moment where we put our trust in Jesus. It's about a daily commitment to being formed and shaped by the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we keep from falling asleep? Well, verse 13 takes a turn from the warning to encouragement. Here's what it says. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Think of how different it would have been if rather than grumbling, rather than encouraging each other to, to curse God, if they'd encouraged one another, if they'd affirmed one another, if they'd reminded each other of who God was. Isolation, and particularly isolation from mutual encouragement of the body, is a very dangerous thing. When you're alone and unaccountable or in bad company, it's so tempting to do the easy thing rather than the right thing. And like the Israelites, sometimes we're going to go through, through extended periods of time in the desert. Town Center, hear me this morning. Who you walk through the desert with matters. Can you imagine if rather than complaining, egging each other on to curse God, rather than hardening their hearts if they'd encouraged and admonished one another, what would it have looked like? How would this story have looked different if that was the case? Who you spend time with matters so much. Christian community, I think about it like this. Christian community is like a heart-softening device. There's a number of stories all throughout history where prisoners keep each other alive just by having someone to talk to, someone to spur them on, someone to tell them they can do it, that everything's going to be okay, we can do this together. God is still faithful. Christians who stayed faithful through severe times of persecution because they had one another to encourage them to, to, to point them towards Jesus, to sing hymns and spiritual songs. I want to take a look at Acts 16 for a moment and, and look together at an example of this exact thing where, where they spur one another on, encourage one another. So just a little bit of context before we read this together. 
Um, Paul and Silas are, are on a journey. They're doing mission together. And uh, they're doing ministry in a city. And there's this woman who's filled with a demon who's nagging them, bugging them, all the sorts of things. So they cast out the demon, and this causes serious problems in the city. People get very upset because she was making a lot of money through the demon that was possessing her, um, whether that be telling people's futures and these sorts of things. So they're very upset. They get dragged into the center of the city, and then that's where we pick up in chapter 16 of Acts, verse 22. It says, The crowd joined an attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown in prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was this this violent earthquake, and the foundation of the prisons were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors, he drew a sword about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. In that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his whole household were baptized. Amazing. The jailer brought them into their house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. An amazing story. Imagine being Paul and and Silas in prison. You believe that God has called you. You have this sense of calling to do ministry, uh, to tell people about the gospel, and you get thrown in prison. But not only once, repeatedly. This continues to happen time after time. What would you do? What do they do? Well, rather than grumbling, rather than complaining, rather than cursing God, they what? They begin to pray. They begin to sing songs and hymns over one another. I can imagine the conversation that they had as they entered the prison, still bleeding from the beating, eyes sealed shut from the rod that caught their eyes. The Roman soldier beat them with a rod to pulp. One is a concussion and a pounding headache. The other is a broken knee. Open wounds that are covered in dirt because they've been dragged into prison and buckled down to the ground. And then I think of the conversation they probably would have had. Maybe Silas says, are you okay, Paul? Paul says, yeah. I count it all joy when I encounter persecution for the sake of the gospel. Silas, we have to trust that God works all things together for good for those who love him. We have to trust him. And maybe Silas says, let's sing. Let's worship him because he's a good and faithful God. And the two begin to sing and admonish one another, sing these truths over one another to help take their eyes off their current situation and lift their gaze back towards heaven, back towards Christ, the the author and the finisher of their faith. But the question I was thinking about as I was reading this passage is, is what would it have looked like if, if Silas was a Debbie Downer? What would it have looked like if Silas said, oh, not again, 
not in prison again. Or what would have happened? I mean, we don't know their hard attitudes. You know, they're humans, so they probably didn't do this all perfectly. We don't know all the interactions that they had. But let's say that, that, that Paul was upset and Silas was trying to encourage him. And he said, let's sing. And Paul said, I'm not singing. I'm done. This is the last straw. Would we have had the rest of the New Testament? Would they have finished their missionary journeys? Would the jailer in his whole house have come to find hope in Jesus, been baptized that night? We don't know. We know that God's sovereign over all things, but we don't know. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. It is critically important that we gather together regularly to be in relationship with one another. And in the language of James K. Smith, to be restoried by the gospel. That's what worship does. That's what the singing of these truths do, like we did this morning, singing those gospel truths. That's what it does. It restores us. It changes the narrative from the narrative out in the world where it's all about this moment and just the pleasures I can find in this moment. It restores us to the gospel narrative. It turns our compass back to true north. So Christians, I would urge you, when you come into church to gather with the Christ, don't stand with your arms crossed as we sing these songs. Don't stand and wait for the singing to be over so that, you can, so that you can listen to the message and go on with your day. I would encourage you to sing these truths with great proclamation because your heart needs to be reoriented, but also singing the truths over those on your left and those on your right, reminding them of the gospel. We don't know where they're at. We don't know what they've walked through this week. We don't know where their mind is at, where their head is at. And as we sing these truths over one another, we're reminded, we're restored by the truth of the gospel. Because we're going to walk through desert times. There will be dark seasons in life. And who you walk through those seasons with matters. It will change the outcome of how you leave those situations. And so that's why it's so important that we're in Christian community, that we're part of the body of Christ. So what's the promise for those who are faithful? You know, as we read further in the passage, it begins to talk about rest. And the promise for those who are faithful to the end, who sustain, is the rest of God. The author of Hebrews, echoing Psalm 95, he states that the great curse for those whose hearts are hard, from rebellion, from those kind of attitudes, from those who turn away from him, is that they'll never enter his rest. Restlessness. The people of Israel were restless as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And where did their restlessness come from? Well, if you boil it all down, the restlessness came from a lack of trust in God. A lack of trust that he would provide for them. A lack of trust that he would actually lead them to the promised land. A lack of trust that his plans were actually good. A lack of trust led to disobedience, to rebellion, to testing, to a hardened heart. And as a result, didn't enter his rest. And they had no reason not to trust him. He'd been providing all along. He delivered them out of Israel's grip. He'd done miracle after miracle for them. He'd given them everything that they needed. Yet they didn't trust that he was who he said he was. Restlessness. Maybe you can relate. Maybe your heart has grown hard in the area of trust. And it's manifesting itself in a sort of restlessness in your soul. Maybe no one here would even know that you're struggling to trust God because you know all the Christianese, you know the textbook answers, you know what to say to get your Christian brothers and sisters off your back, to stop bugging you and to stop nagging you.
but deep down, you're restless. You're worried. You're anxious. You're fearful about the future. St. Augustine wrote it like this. For thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find delight in thee. N.T. Wright so eloquently wrote that the only way that God's rest will be missed by the church, by believers, is through a hardened heart, one that's disobedient and shows contempt for God. Trust. Now, it's so much easier said than done. But the question I have for us this morning is will we cast our cares on him or will we be like the Israelite people and continually forget who he is and that he's been caring for us the whole time? This was the bottom line for the wavering church in Hebrews. Could they trust God to care for their needs? Because there's no rest in life without trust. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' burden is light because it doesn't require us to perform in order to be made right with God. We can rest in the finished work of Christ and fall on the mercy of God Knowing that he doesn't judge us based on our ability to perform, he judges us based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. When he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our brokenness and our grossness and our imperfections. What he sees when we're in Christ, he looks at us and he sees the finished work of Jesus. So then what does that do with Moses? What does that make of the law? Do we disregard it? Of course not. We follow the law, but not to be made right with God. We follow it because we've been made right with God. We follow his ways as a response to what Jesus has done for us. The law of Moses is so important because it presents a framework, an ethic, a way of living, a path that helps us to make sense of our reality and our human experience. The reality is the way of Jesus is just the best way to be human. The reality is, Trust in him is what brings rest to our soul. Trust that he knows best, that he's with us, that he's fighting on our behalf. I just want to remind you this morning that your identity is not found in how well you perform at work, whether you get a promotion or you don't, how good a mom or a dad you are to your children, whether you get all A's or or all F's in school, whether your home's always clean or always a mess whether your kids eat only organic foods or whether you've been to McDonald's three times this week and you're thinking about going after church. (laughs) Your identity isn't found in your ability to perform. As a disciple of Jesus, you can rest in the simple truth that you're an adopted son or daughter of God. And we do all those things, our work, our family, our schooling, our meal prep, the cleaning of our house, not to prove ourselves or to earn something before God, but we do it in light of all that he's done for us, saying we've already been forgiven. Now we'll walk in that forgiveness. Amen? Can I pray for you, band? You can come up as we respond together. Lord, thanks for my friends. And uh, I just pray that 
from what I've shared today, the things that are from you, from your heart, I pray that they would sink deep, that we would be good soil this morning, that the things that you want to do in us, even as we sing now, as we respond, as we listen for your voice, would you drill those things deep into our hearts so that we would continue to be shaped into the image of your son, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.